we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. So any guesses what chapter we are on today? 11. All right, you guys are keeping up, right? Chapter 11, we've been working through this book for the last couple months, and it's been a pretty beautiful book, really just focusing on who Jesus is. And really for the first uh, 10 chapters of Hebrews, the, the major focus has been on defining and understanding the greatness of Jesus. And then as we noticed last week, there's been a hinge point, there's been a turning point. And the big question now is if this is who Jesus is, if this is what he's accomplished, if this is everything he's done for you, what are you going to do about it? What's your response? How are you going to act? And so the big question and the big statement we're looking at this morning is Jesus is the greatest object of faith. In other words, Jesus is the greatest thing that we could put our trust in. And so we're going to be talking a lot about faith this morning and understanding faith and how do we define faith and what does it mean to have faith in Jesus. But let me, let me premise the conversation by asking a few questions. Uh, we're coming to the end of summer. Who's pretty sad about that? A lot of you. Who actually enjoys winter? Anyone? Oh, more than I thought, right? Now, winter is a season. Now, how confident are you that we're going to experience winter this year? Very confident, right? Now, what are some of the reasons for that confidence? Why do you think winter is going to happen this year? What are some evidences for that? The past history. Look at the past. The seasons change, right? What are some other things? Yes, no, we've seen it, we recognize it, we've got a taste of it, we've got a glimpse of it. We know that when it gets cold in this area, snow is going to come down, moisture from the sky. Yeah, the crops are ready for harvest, right? We recognize that the season is changing and summer's coming to an end and we're transitioning. Yeah, God himself tells us that he created this world with seasons, Right? Pardon? Yeah, the day's getting shorter. You recognize it. And so when we think about looking forward, hoping for winter, there's reasons, evidences behind that hope, isn't there? There's reasons for why we know a new season is coming. Now, that's important when we talk about faith this morning. Because I think so often when we have our, our culture understanding of faith, we have a faith concept, especially in terms of religious nature, as somehow faith in our culture has got turned into wishful thinking. Now, is that a biblical definition of faith? No. Uh, I mean, I've, I've, I've talked to and experienced with so many people who are, are skeptics and, and pondering religious questions, and one of the reasons they, some of the reasons they deny Christianity or other faith is because, well, they say it's a blind faith. It's just wishful thinking. It's not based in anything. It's not based in reason or logic or evidence. It's really just a blind faith that's wishful thinking. I could never be a part of that. And if that were true, I could never be a part of that either. But the thing is, that's not how Scripture or God Himself defines faith. That's not how He gives us an understanding of what it means to believe and trust in God. And so when I, when I hear skeptics say, show me evidence, 
I say, well, that actually is the biblical definition of faith, of, of looking for evidence and longing for evidence. I, I mean, just look at some of the, the, the testimonies that we read throughout Scripture. It's this beautiful understanding of the Scripture actually demands evidence. So this is what the Apostle Peter says. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised mist. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were, does anyone know, but were eyewitnesses to His majesty. In other words, we saw something, there was evidence. Even Luke, as he begins his gospel account uh, to Theophilus, he says, It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. And what he does is he basically goes around interviewing all eyewitnesses of Jesus to verify, to testify to what is true about Jesus. And even Paul, another apostle, 1 Corinthians 15, what does he say? For the reason of the faith that he has. He says, there are eyewitnesses to the gospel. People have seen Jesus. I have seen Jesus I witnessed the resurrected Christ Himself. And so when we talk about faith this morning, it's the farthest thing from blind faith or wishful thinking that we could imagine. The Bible itself actually demands evidence and looking at reason for what we believe. And so what I want to cover this morning is, is really this question, what is faith? What does it look like? Because faith accomplishes something. Faith acts out in something. And what does it accomplish? And so, first of all, what is faith? How does the, the writer of Hebrews give us a definition of faith? And so this is what he says in the first three verses. He says, now faith is the what? Assurance. It's a key word. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. We're going to talk about what hope means in a minute. The conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So let's just pause there. Now, we're going to be walking through all of chapter 11, so I'll try not to take too long here, but this is a very important part of the text. So faith is the assurance of what? Of things hoped for, right? So what are we talking about? There's, there's a deep connection here than an understanding of faith with an understanding of hope. So does this mean that we're talking about blind faith? Because it's talking about things that we see that we haven't seen yet, so to say. But this is what it's talking about. When we talk about the idea of hope, it's also quite a bit of different culture than we have in our, in our Western context. Because when we talk about hope, often we use that word in very wishful thinking as well. Because when you hope for something to happen, does that mean it's going to happen? No. And, and that's not the type of hope that Hebrews 11 is talking about. It's, it's functioning quite different. When Hebrews talks about hope, it's, it's not talking about a desire for the future that is uncertain. It's rather a desire for the future outcome that is sure. It's hope. It's something we know that will come into fruition. Same way that you might hope or long for winter so that you can go snowmobiling or snowboarding, whatever it may be. You hope for winter to come 
But is it wishful thinking? No, it's certain. It's true. It's something you know that will come. And so, <coughs> when faith is linked to hope, then, it's this concept of the frame of the future. It's this concept that I know, just as I know winter is coming, I know the plans and purposes of God will come into fruition, that they will come into fruition. And so faith in Hebrews is very closely tied to hope because faith is looking at God and trusting in His character and hope is looking to the future and trusting what God has to provide for that future. And so evidence then is this sense that I don't know what tomorrow necessarily is going to bring, but I know that God knows what tomorrow is going to bring. And I know that He's bringing in a new heavens and a new earth where He will make all things right once again. And so this is the hope that He gives. So verse 3 then, what does this mean? By faith we understand the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In other words, we are created creatures. We're created beings. Now, think about this from the perspective, even from a scientific perspective. Um, scientists will say today that we can go down to the, the nanoseconds of when the Big Bang happened, which is pretty wild when we think about it. It's in, I actually just read an article, The Big Bang Challenges, being, uh, theories being challenged, but that's a whole other issue right now. But anyway, nanoseconds of the Big Bang Theory. The problem we face as humans is, what happened before that? We, we still don't have an answer to that question. Why? Because we have things come into fruition, we have things come into reality, and yet we don't know what was the source behind those things. Even if we understand the Big Bang Theory, and how the world came into fruition, unless we answer the question previous, we don't really know that much, right? Because who really cares if we exist if we don't know why we exist or the purposes to which we exist for? And so, in many senses, we as beings all live with a, some aspect of faith, some aspect of understanding what is right. And the problem we face is, if we are all there is, there's not much faith to put in humanity, is there? Why is there not much faith to put in humanity? Humanity is failing in many capacities, right? And humanity has failed. There's no help. There's no hope. Yeah, there's no lasting hope. Sure, we may have good seasons and see a lot of beautiful things produced by humans, but throughout the history of humanity, it's been a disaster. And so if that's your hope that somehow humans can make all things good, we are truly missing out. But here's the thing. If, if the universe is a created universe, if something created the world, created the cosmos, then meaning itself and purpose itself is now possible. Without Creator, there is no meaning and purpose. There's nothing to put faith in other than humanity, and we fail over and over again. And so the, the writer of Hebrews reminds us our, our faith, our trust, is that God created this world with a purpose, 
He created with meaning. He created with value. He created with significance. And also that our God, because He created this world, He's the only one able to fix it, right? He's the only one able to do anything about that brokenness. And so all these things that are created remind us of a God who will renew and reconcile. And this is really what the last part of Hebrews is all about. The end of chapter 11 and chapter 12 and chapter 13 is all about reminding us that God is going to make things right. And and that all the sorrow and hardship and pain and injustice and evil in this world, God is making right. And we can trust that because He's the one who created it all, which means that He can recreate it. When a kid plays with Play-Doh, they build something, if they tear it apart, can they fix it? They rebuild. Why? Because they're the ones who created it. They're the ones who made it. They have that capability, and this is what God does. So, that is what faith is. That is what faith is. Faith is coming to this perspective that I know who God is. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the one who brings salvation and reconciliation and renewal and redemption of all things. I know who He is, and therefore my hope and my trust and my faith is based on Him and what He is accomplishing. Now, we can have that from a mental perspective. We can have that belief, but what the Scripture goes on to tell us is unless that belief changes something in your life, that belief means nothing. Why? Because if you just believe something in your head and it doesn't produce action, does it really mean anything? No, it doesn't accomplish anything. And so now what the writer of Hebrews is going to go on, he's going to go on to all these stories. He's going to say, this is what faith actually accomplishes. This is what it does. This is how it works. And so what does faith look like then is our next massive question. What does it look like? And the premise here is that faith is action. Faith is action. It produces something. And so now we're just going to walk through tons of stories of the Old Testament. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, some of this might get confusing, but I don't have time to tell each and every story. This would literally be me reading the entirety of the Old Testament to explain all these to you. But a fascinating thing maybe for you to do this week is to read through this section of Hebrews and come back to these stories of the Old Testament and get a deeper understanding of what faith looks like. And so again, faith isn't this mental activity. It actually transforms. It actually changes how you live. And so let's begin to read some of these stories. Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith... Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was condemned, uh, commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so what do we learn from Abel? We basically learn that faith honors God. Why? Because what was the issue with Cain? He, he offered in hypocrisy. 
He didn't offer out of love and reverence and submission to God. He offered out of hypocrisy. Where Abel actually honored God. Abel wanted to praise and worship and adore God. And so faith honors God is what we learn from Abel. Again, I'm going to rip through these because there's so many to go through. Let's read some of these other ones. So Enoch, the next person. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. Crazy thing that happened. There's so much literature written on this from this century. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended at having what? Having pleased God. And so faith then pleases God. In other words, we, we can't come to God if we don't believe there is a God, if we don't trust God, and we cannot seek to please God if we don't actually believe that He exists and that He actually rewards those who seek Him, as the text says. And so Enoch demonstrated this faith by actually seeking to please God, by actually caring of what God thought and God's opinions in a way that honored God. Who's the next one? Noah, the story of Noah, Noah's Ark for those, I don't know if you went to Sunday school when you were a kid, but this is a very common story in Sunday school, but I always laugh because it's actually a pretty horrific story when you think about it. A bunch of, they don't show all the dead bodies floating around the boat, but that's a whole other story. I won't go in case there's some more kids in here, but my wife's telling me to shush. I was going on a rabbit trail. But it says, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and become an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. And so you look at the story of Noah. Was Noah mocked for what he did in his culture? He was 100% mocked. He was ridiculed. He was judged exponentially by his culture that they couldn't see what Noah saw. And so it teaches us that, you know what, faith may sometimes look foolish. Faith may seem like something that doesn't seem absolutely logical. Faith may cause us to produce an action that does something strange or weird, right? But Faith, according to Noah, was putting his confidence not in the judgments of those around him, but in the judgments of God and what God asked him to do. And so this faithful obedience, even when it seems strange or weird, is what we learn from Noah. Let's keep going. Abraham, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, how did he go out? Not knowing where he was going, right? By faith he went to live in a land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city, massive theme that we don't have time for, I'll touch on a little bit. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so what do we see from Abraham? Abraham's faith and his action produce what? He went somewhere, 
not knowing where he's going. In other words, he stepped out on what God called him to do even when there was all this uncertainty around it. Even when there was all this unknown around it. Even when all his questions to God weren't answered. Even when he didn't have things figured out. Now, this is wild to me because anyone here like me that you need to plan and schedule and know everything that's coming in the next week or month, anyone like that? Right? Whereas this is an aspect of faith like saying, sometimes God's not going to tell you. Sometimes God's not going to let you know. Sometimes you just need to move forward without having everything figured out and trusting that God will be faithful. And, and this is the beautiful thing. This is the exact same thing that his wife Sarah experienced as well. It says, by faith Sarah received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, around 90 years old. But here's the key thing, since she considered him what? Considered God faithful. In other words, her and Abraham didn't have everything figured out, but they knew that God was faithful no matter where it would go. And so here we see then this, this beautiful summary statement of all these, these people from the story. Oh yeah, sorry, this is a continuation of Abraham. Therefore, from one man, talking about Abraham, and him as good as what? As good as dead. In other words, he was very old were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. In other words, Abraham became the father to many nations. Why? Because through him the Messiah would come, which would birth the church throughout the nations, the people of God. And yet they were 90 years old when they had their son Isaac. Right? Crazy what God has done. And so here's the summary statement. It says, these all died in what? In faith. In other words, these all died trusting in who God is and what He accomplishes. Not having received the things promised. In other words, they, they didn't understand the full extent of what God would do and what God would accomplish. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles of the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seen in homeland. And here's the story. Here's the whole story of the promised land and entering into it. They didn't. They never experienced the fullness of what God had for them. Yet God clearly answered their longings and their hope. So let's keep going. There's a lot more here that we're going to process. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is what? A heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Now, this is a massive theme in Scripture. And I could spend so much time here because it's one of my favorite themes. But there's this beautiful aspect of the story of the people of Israel. Where was their, their longing? Where was the land to which God was leading them? Called the, the promised land, Canaan, right? Now, many of them didn't actually get to experience living in that land. 
And here's what God is telling them. He's saying, you know what? The, the longings for this perfect place of shalom, this perfect place of peace where there's no injustice and no evil and everyone's living reconciled to God and one another and creation and self, this longing that you have is not going to be experienced in the here and now. What is God preparing for them? A city. Where do we see reference to a city in Scripture? At the end of the story in Revelation, right? A new heavens and a new earth, and what's the vision? A heavenly city, and what's the picture there? What city? New Jerusalem coming down. In other words, everything on earth is being restored and reconciled, and we start from the beginning of Scripture, and Adam and Eve are where? In the Garden of Eden, right? And yet, at the end of Scripture, where do we see humanity? In a heavenly city. And so there's this picture of we see a couple surrounded by a garden. They're called to cultivate and build. And then at the end of Scripture, we see many nations and multitudes creating this culture into cities being reconciled with God and with self. Now, I could go on a rabbit trail for it. So it's a, it's a garden city. But I, I want to rant, but I don't have time to explain it fully. But just think that anymore. But God has prepared for them a city. In other words, a new heavens, a new earth, a things where all things are made right, a better country, a heavenly one, all the things that they long for in faith. And so let's keep going. Abraham gets brought up once again. Why is Abraham brought up again? Uh, verse 17 to 19, it says this, By faith, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. As he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offsprings be named. Verse 19, He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, here's one of the weird stories of the Old Testament, of, of God promising Abraham that he's going to build these nations through him, that his, his offspring is going to be numerous as the stars in the sky, and yet when he's, him and Sarah are around 90 years old, they have this boy named Isaac, Yes, the promise is finally being answered by God. The offspring will happen. We couldn't have kids, but now we could. And then God says what? Sacrifice your child. And he says, what is going on? And, and, and this, is, this is really at the heart of what's going on in Abraham's mind. It, it, was, it was more than just the thought of sacrificing someone he loved, this was literally the hope for the future. This was literally what God said He was promising to come into fruition, and now it's like, oh, God's taking back His promise. What is going on? And, and so you really realize that Abraham is, is in a complete place of vulnerability here because now he begins to question the promises of God, but even more so what he would have been questioning is is. Obviously, in agrarian society, the more sons you had, the more workers you had. And the more children you had, the more likely you would be able to take care of in your old age. 
And, and Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says this. He says, barrenness or childlessness in any ancient text or narrative is the effective metaphor of, guess what? Hopelessness. For without children, there was no foreseeable future for yourself, for your family, or for your people. In other words, from an earthly perspective, Abraham was literally staring at hopelessness. And yet, who did he trust in? He trusted in God. He trusted in the character of God. He trusted who God was. And this was his conviction that even if God asked me to do this, I believe that God has the power to raise him from the dead. Now back to that story. Is this ultimately what God asked of Abraham to do? No, Isaac was spared. But what does it foreshadow? For God is Father. It foreshadows what? Christ. Where God the Father sacrificed His Son to be the atonement for our sin so that we could be restored and made right with God. And what's beautiful is this story of Abraham who believed in a God that could literally raise this child from the dead. That comes into fruition in who God is who raised Christ from the dead. Beautiful. That took faith. He said, God, my future is in your hand. Our hope, our security, our joy is all in you. It's a wild story of the Old Testament. A lot to talk about there, but we don't have time for it. And then we read on. Verse 20 says, By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And by faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. What is going on here? What is this all talking about? Well, here's two stories, basically, of people who died in a state where it didn't look like God was anywhere close to fulfilling his promises. In other words, they died without the very promises of God being fulfilled in their lives. You see, God had told Abraham and his descendants would be a great nation. They would have their own land and they would be a blessing on the earth. Jacob was Abraham's grandson and yet when he dies, where's the family? Does anyone know? They're in Egypt. They're nowhere close to where God had desired for them. And things are going the wrong direction for them rather than look like they're making a great nation coming out of them to be a blessing. They are literally exiles in another land. And yet, when he dies, he leans on his staff and he makes a promise to his son and asks to be buried back in the promised land knowing that God's promises would come into fruition. And we see the same thing with Joseph. When Joseph, when, when his son dies, the, the whole family is still in Egypt. Isn't that interesting? And he does the same thing. He says, when our family returns to the land God gave us, dig up my bones and do what? Does anyone know? Take them back to the land. Why? Because God's promises are coming true. I know for sure that this isn't the end of the story and that God promised and will keep his word. More wild stories there. 
Let's keep moving. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It's a pretty good position, isn't it? Yet he refuses it, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. So we're going back to the story of Moses and the Exodus here. And the wild thing about the story of Moses is you think about how crazy this is. Moses has this inheritance that he could claim. All the privilege and position you could have ever hoped for in Egypt. Literally, he has one of the highest positions in one of the most mightiest empires in that time. And what do we see him doing? He gives it all up. He gives it all up. He walks away from it. And and it's not like he left one position of power in Egypt for another position of power in Israel. That doesn't happen for another 40 years in the story. But he left all this power. Does anyone know what he does? He feeds sheep, herds sheep, and hangs out in the desert. Right? Wild. You can almost hear people telling him how crazy he is, right? And yet, and yet, why? He traded the visible kingdom for the invisible kingdom of God, knowing what God would accomplish, knowing what it meant to be faithful to a God who was faithful to him. And so let's, let's finish off this section. It says, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. What's the story of? Anyone know? Exodus, right? But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. And I mean, you think about the faith story of the Exodus alone. I mean, this is pretty wild to think about historically, too, is as people walk through this water, literally the threat of death is surrounding them, yet they're trusting, they're having their faith in God to protect them, right? Yeah. So much could be said there too. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. What's this story of? Yeah, the walls of Jericho with Joshua, right? Probably the most illogical battle you could ever think of. What do the people do there? Instead of just fighting, uh, taking out swords and taking down a city, what do they do? They began marching around the city. What are they marching with? Trumpets and noises and yelling, right? And what ends up happening? The walls fall down, right? It's just this crazy historical stuff. You can see why some of this is written in these historical records because they're mind-blowing what has taken place of what God has done among His people. 
And he says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. This talk about Joshua and the spies going into the land because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. In other words, she decided what side she was going to be on, and she chose Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. And there's, there's so much more that could be said, but what I want to bring out this section is really just this concept then. If faith is trusting in who God is and His character, faith also has to be acting out on it. Faith in many senses and action. Because these, these people in this chapter are all recorded and written down throughout history for their faith. But if we notice how they are described, each one of them are presented in some form or fashion with the action they did. In other words, what was accomplished. And so, faith is an action word. Now, here's another thing for us even to think about, even in our English language. What is the noun for faith? Does anyone know? What is the noun for faith? It's a trick question because there isn't one, right? I know, I was going to see how long I could get you guys pondering with that one, but there, there isn't one. There, there isn't an out for faith. Why? Because faith is an action word. It, it's not just a mental assent and a belief, but faith is, is something that drives action from us. And so as, as we, we consider this as Christians and as we consider everything we've talked about in Hebrews 1 to 10, we have to come to terms that, you know what, it, this is the important thing when we turn this page in Hebrew, so to say. If all we have is mental assent and belief about who Jesus is, but it doesn't actually transform us and transform who we are, then it's not a faith that pleases God. It's not a faith that is real. It's not a faith that actually is rooted in Scripture. Because faith does not exist apart from action according to Scripture. It's a conviction that's expressed in action. So let me, let me wrap up this, this last section. What has faith accomplished then? This last section is pretty intense. I'm going to bring a, a few themes from it as well. But what does faith actually accomplish? Let's read this text together. Verse 32. And what more shall I say? What's, what's he saying? There's so many other stories that could be told about the greatness of God and what he's accomplished through people. He says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me in other words, I would run out of time. That's how I'm feeling right now too. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. Who through faith, here's some descriptions of what they accomplished, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, Stop the mouths of lion. Who do you think he's thinking about there? Daniel. Daniel. Quench the power of fire. 
escape the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. What's he thinking about there? Yeah, Elijah and Elisha. Yeah, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to what? Better life. I'm going to camp out on that in a second. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not what? Worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And really, us walking through the book of Acts, this is what we see in the early church, isn't it? And I mean, even past the book of Acts, in the first few centuries of the church, there was massive persecution. There was massive suffering under the Roman Empire. And we see that today. We see this in places all over the world where this is the reality of the church, of heavy persecution, of suffering. And all these, though, commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had promised something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And so, what is, what is all going on here? This is the question again, what does faith actually accomplish? And faith accomplishes something beautiful when we think about it. But when we read these stories, and, and we see the horrific nature of what some people have to go through in life, especially as Christians, it, it reminds us of something that is a massive theme throughout the book of Hebrews and a massive theme throughout the entire New Testament is that they might rise again, verse 35, to a better life. And that God had provided something better for us. In other words, all the evil, all the injustices, all the sorrows that we will go through in this life, the hope that we have in Jesus, the hope that we have in knowing God, is that it will all be made right. Amen? And this is that, again, this, again, this is the theme of the new heavens and the new earth, the new city, the, the garden city. And, and what I want to say to this point, as we think about what faith accomplishes, here's my big premise here, is faith moves us to risky obedience in this world. Why? In light of the coming kingdom of God. Amen? When we have a perspective of what God is accomplishing and the better world that God has planned for us, the sufferings and injustice and evil and hardship that we go through in this life are nothing compared to what He has for us. That is our hope. And, th- and this is a beautiful quote from Martin Luther, uh, a 16th century. He was a, a monk who later became a Protestant pastor. He said this. He said, Faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace. So certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Amen? 
such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you ever joyful and bold in your relationship to God and everyone else. And because of it, you freely, willingly, and joyfully do good to everyone, serve everyone, and suffer all kinds of things, never ceasing to love and praise and rejoice in the God who has shown you grace. Beautiful thought, isn't it? But for it to be faith, it has to be more than a thought, right? And the massive premise here is that because we are so certain of God's favor, because we are so certain of what God is accomplishing, even though we may die in this life never seeing it come into fruition, just like so many stories from the rest of this chapter, it establishes in this faith where we can be so hopeful and trusting in who God is and what He will accomplish that we can go through anything in this life. And, and what's, what's the implication here? The implication, as Luther reminds us, is as because of it, you will freely, willingly, and joyfully do good to everyone. That's the implication. In other words, because we know what God has accomplished, we can be a people of forgiveness. We can be a people of restoration to those who have hurt us. We can be a people who even pray for our enemies. Isn't that crazy? Right? We, we can do all these things that make no sense in our current culture. Why? Because we have a glimpse of what is to come. See, it's interesting. If we actually understand the storyline of Scripture and what's brought up in Hebrews here of the new city, and, and if we know that there's coming a world where every relationship is reconciled and healed by the death and the resurrection of Jesus... All of a sudden, the bitterness and unforgiveness and even fear doesn't fit in the new creation, doesn't it? It doesn't match. It doesn't line up. What does line up is, is lives of, of love and generosity and service and forgiveness. Why? Because that's what we're getting a taste of in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we're longing for. That's what it means to follow Jesus in this path. It seems crazy to the world. And again, the story of Noah reminds us of that, but that's exactly what we should be practicing for. That's exactly what we should be longing for. And so, a closing thought. If you're going to be faithful to Jesus... If you're going to exercise faith as you follow Jesus, then you need to understand that there's going to be action that comes from it. And many times there's going to be action that actually costs you something. And to the world around us, the actions that cost us something will not make any sense. But they will make sense in light of the kingdom of God coming into fruition. And they will make sense in the, the frame that we get a taste of experiencing what God has for us in the new heavens and the new earth. Amen, church? Let's pray to that extent as the team comes up. Gracious God, we, 
We come before you first and foremost because you are a God who is faithful and worthy of our trust. Lord, there's so many things in this world that we can place our trust in that will ultimately fail us, that will ultimately let us down, that will ultimately disappoint us. And yet, Lord, we know the faith and hope that we have in you is certain because of who you are and what you have done and what we know you will do. And so we pray that as we journey through this life, Lord, that our faith would transform us, that it would change us to be a people who are bold, a people who are courageous, a people who long first and foremost to please you in everything that we do. Lord, we read so many stories throughout history, and especially through this text in Hebrews 11, of what it means to exercise faith. And I pray that each and every one of us would be part of that story as your people who show the world around us what it means to trust in a faithful God. And Lord, even when things in our lives uh, look silly or weird, um, Lord, we know that those decisions we make for you will be honored as they please you. Let us not be so concerned with the judgment of the people around us, but simply your judgment alone. And let us to be found faithful, knowing that our faith allows us to be declared righteous in your eyes. So gracious Father, we come before you in humility as we read the stories of what you have accomplished in the lives of so many. And we pray that it would be true in our lives as well as we exercise a faith in the God who is worthy of such faith. Thank you, gracious God. Amen. Amen.